What's past is prologue, Shakespeare informed us, but what if the past is misunderstood or misrepresented? What if policymakers are making policies based on false historical narratives? A personal note, I went to Iran in 1979 to report on the revolution that was then underway. Let me be honest, I didn't know much about the country, but neither did most of my colleagues, reporters from around the world who had parachuted in to cover this big story. I was working on a documentary for PBS, which had arranged for me to partner with an Iranian producer. So at least he was knowledgeable, right? Well, yes and no. He was gung-ho for the revolution and an ardent admirer of its leader, the Ayatollah Khomeini. In other words, he was not a truth-seeking journalist, but an enthusiastic propagandist. So this turned out to be a challenging assignment for me. All these many years later, Ray Takai, the Hasib J. Sabak Senior Fellow for Middle East Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations, is trying to understand and reveal the truth about modern Iranian history. He's well suited to the task. He holds a doctorate in modern history from Oxford University and has served as a senior advisor on Iran at the State Department. He's with us today. Also with us, Ruel Markorek, a former Iranian targets officer in the Central Intelligence Agency, currently a resident scholar here at FDD. I'm glad you're joining us too here on Foreign Policy. Well, good to see you both. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks Pleasure. for having me back. You know, you know, Ray, you've been on Foreign Policy before, and I, I always read what you write, but it occurs to me, I don't really know much about you. So what's your story? Where were you born? Where were you raised? What did you want to be when you grew up? Uh, I was born in Tehran, and I, as you can imagine, moved to the United States after the revolution in 1979. And you were how old at that point? 11, 12. 11, 12. Uh, so you didn't speak English when you got here? No, I did not. Well, I okay. took some rudimentary English classes as part of the curriculum. Uh, okay, okay. But I did not. I did not have the... Let, let's em emphasize how deeply traumatic it was for Ray. It was it was very traumatic. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I work on the Carter administration, and people always ask me why. I said, the Carter presidency is always going to be the most consequential presidency of my life. Because it was coterminous with the most significant revolution of my life, the Iranian Revolution of 1978-79. Uh, what I wanted to be to grow up, well, I tried very hard to assimilate. So I wanted to like be a professional basketball player. Uh, <laughs> and for most of the my, my life, I tried to stay away from Iran studies. But every time I would go see an instructor, they would say, why don't you take up Iran? <laughs> uh, so eventually, I guess I did, and and I have uh, grown in my understanding of the very complex country uh, in in that particular sense. Yeah, Fasc that's fascinating. I'm glad to glad to know that. Actually, Ruel, you might spend a second. Why, as a young man from Kansas, did you say, oh, I know, I want to Missouri, study Missouri. 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 I, I, get, a, okay. I okay. get the middle America confused sometimes. Yeah. Go, what, yeah. you know, what, what, what drew you to think, yeah, I want to study, learn Farsi and uh, study Iran, yeah. Iranian uh, history? I mean, that's a good question. I, I, was, I, I traveled a lot in my youth. Uh, uh, my father had uh, 
uh, after he got out of the Korean War, motorcycled around the world for two years. He took thousands and thousands of 35 millimeter slides. I grew up with them. He had, even when we were kids, a great deal of wanderlust, so we were always traveling. And I initially fell in love with uh, uh, Europe, medieval European history. And, uh, you know, by chance, I met, a, I met a professor who had been an intelligence officer for Rommel in the Africa Corps, uh, who done a... Done a well, Rommel for the German Rommel side. Rommel for the German side. Okay. Uh, who, who, had done a, uh, who had done a double degree in, uh, in Arabic and Swahili at the University of Vienna. He was a white Russian uh, immigre uh, back in the days when the University of Vienna was one of the greatest universities in the world. And anyway, I, he just said, you know, why don't you, to, to do properly medieval European history, you need to start doing Arabic, you need to start doing Islamic history. And I started doing it. And I I started shifting. I started traveling in the Middle East. And I always remembered um, from my father's 35 millimeter slides that the most beautiful places in the world in 1953 were both French. Uh, one of them, the most beautiful, was French Indochina. Hmm. And runner up was French Algeria. Hmm. Hmm. And it, it just sort of stuck with me. And I, long story made short, I shifted. Where where is the Bernard Lewis connection come from? Well, Bernard uh, was at at Princeton, and uh, we just sort of hit it off. I mean, uh, it's not a secret anymore. Uh, Bernard had been an MI6. Um, he was actually the Turkish officer for MI6 uh, during World War II, uh, and he knew of my uh, aspirations to join the agency. I was very fortunate at Princeton. There were other former intelligence officers. So I had a great deal of prep and uh, you might say lead in. Uh, and um, Bernard and I just became very close. Uh, we liked uh, we liked similar things. Uh, it, uh, a lot of people don't know that ab about him, but uh, he was a very generous fellow and he also liked to drink a lot. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and, uh, and he liked uh, ethnic and, jokes and he liked, <laughs> ethnic jokes. Yeah. He, was, he was, he was one of the greatest punsters in the world. And, uh, and, and as Cliff knows, I like to drink a lot too. So, uh, there were many bonds and that's, that's how it started. And everybody should know, I, I consider, I think the three of us do Bernard Lewis to be the, the greatest scholar of both the Middle East and Islam of the 20th century. Um, and and, he, and and 21st century and 21st century he, even yes, though quite right even, even though he's dead that's true he lived to he's, be 100 people should know but and he's, he, he's posthumously still better than his contemporaries yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and and by I, the way fdd would send him for many years a, a bottle every year of johnny walker blue that's what we would send him uh, which yeah, is, yeah. I, mean, I think it's I think it's fair to say that the Muslim discovery of Europe is that, you know, that rare history book that might be read 50 years from now. It's it, I think it's Bernard's greatest work. And, uh, you know, yeah, most most history books fade. That one might not. Yeah. And other things people should look up and know about is he spoke something like 16 languages, which is really, I mean, it's so well, extraordinary. Not only, not, not only did that, but he also could tell jokes in them. And most importantly, I think, is that once upon a time to express his love for his his, his wife, uh, he learned Danish. 
and he wrote a novel in Danish. And when I found out about this, I said, I tried to find it. And I said, I, I, I said, Bernard, I can't find the novel anywhere. And he says, well, I wrote it under pseudonym. And I said, so what's the pseudonym? And he, he went, Lewis Bernard. <laughs> <laughs> he was also uh, brutally and unfairly attacked for years by Edward Said and his band of... Uh, I don't know what you'd call them, band of early, early wokest leftists. Uh, I don't know. How would you just, how would you describe Edward Said, Edward Said and what he brought into the world of Islamic scholarship, so to speak? That's right. Uh, I, I, I mean, I, I think he, 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 he brought in a certain, uh, subjective, subjectivism, uh, he, he sort of denied the basic principles of scholarship, and that is that, uh, you know, uh, there is a, a truth out there. You have to hunt for it. You have to learn the languages. Uh, and he introduced the idea that, in fact, Western scholars, by being Western scholars, uh, uh, couldn't actually hunt for the truth, uh, that they were bigoted, they were biased, they could be agents of imperialism. Uh, and that uh, Islamic history really, uh, even though it's funny enough, you know, Edwin Said was a Christian, but uh, that that study uh, was inevitably tainted by sort of a genetic defect uh, in Western scholarship. It was, it's, it's really quite pernicious. I hope that uh, its high watermark is, is over. And one of the things I just I just want to add one thing to this. Uh, Lewis was one of the few people that saw the Iranian Revolution for what it was, correct? Uh, and and how how the religious aspects of it. And as a matter of fact, I think a couple of months ago was it, Ruel, that I sent you a debate that Lewis did with Hamid Algar on what was then called the McNeil and Lair News Hour, which is was actually the whole episode of the News Hour was devoted to that debate. Uh, and it was actually quite illuminating because uh, Lewis, one of the few people that actually read the text, read what Khomeini was saying, and mm -hmm. he understood, and he understood that this actually means it. Uh, and he actually saw the Iranian revolution and all this uh, militant Islamism, I think, before most people did. And he saw the centrality of certain type of religion in the middle of that popular revolt before others did. And I think he wrote an essay in commentary which was the first essay that talked about Khomeini's works, but Ruel may know that better than I do. Yeah, I mean, he was he was taking issue with commentary in, uh, in the New York Times that said that Khomeini was an enigma, and he particularly took very amusing uh, uh, objection to uh, Edward Kennedy's uh, comments that uh, uh, Khomeini was the George Washington of Iran. He right. said that He's the senator both revealed a profound ignorance of American history uh, and Iranian history at the same time. Yeah, Khomeini has been writing since like 1945, and that gets back to what I was saying. Most of the journalists, and I know I know this better now than I did then. Obviously, the, the journalists, the diplomats who would soon be in car, who soon be held hostage, they were not really familiar with Khomeini. They saw him as sort of a a mild-mannered, sincere cleric who would provide guidance but had no ambitions beyond that. And uh, by the way, most Iranians, I mean, the Iranians that I was friendliest with because I only spoke English were young Iranians like me who had, but who had you know, 
spent a few semesters at University of Texas at Austin or something like that, and most of them were not Islamists, but they believed, and this I remember very clearly, they believed that Khomeini valued them because they were part of this revolution that was not just, in their view, an Islamist revolution, but was a revolution of the of the students and the bazaaris and the socialists and the all of everybody, and that Khomeini valued all of them. And of course they were they were very wrong, and a lot of them paid with their lives. Uh, others with their freedoms. Others managed managed to get back to Austin. I think. Anyway. Uh, yeah, I would say Khomeini's book, the, his seminal book, Islamic Rebel, Islamic uh, Government, Hukumata Islami, was available in most Western libraries, whether it's Firestone, Princeton, or Widener at Harvard, or what Sterling at Yale. There, it was it was available in those books. That's where Lewis read it. Mm-hmm. All right. So this actually does. It, it's not just a, an interesting digression. It does get us to the reason I invited you. To, to do this podcast right now, because you recently wrote an op-ed for the Wall Street Journal. It was headlined, The Real Story of the 1953 Iranian Coup. And it was it was really much more than just an op-ed. It was a it was a rebuttal of the prevailing narrative that the that the US, more specifically the CIA, was responsible for toppling Mohammed Mossadegh. Iran's democratically elected prime minister, that this, and the narrative is that this was America's original sin in Iran, that it remains a legitimate grievance of Iran's current rulers, that it justifies the hostilities, the hostility of the Islamist regime, and that this interference is on a par with the seizure of the U.S. embassy and the hostage taking of 1979, following the revolution in early in the year. And so Americans need to acknowledge the moral equivalence and accept the guilt and make amends. And you persuasively refute all that. So, you know, take it take it from there, uh, Ray. Sure, thanks. Well, as Rel knows, because he and I talk regularly, one of the things, the underlining theme of what I, my work, I don't want to be pretentious and call it my work, is that the Iranians are responsible for their own history. And they're also are also in command of their own history. They they actually make their own decisions and concoct their own narratives. One of the best ways of understanding the coup in general is a, almost a sociological approach, is to have an understanding of two very distinct political cultures, the Iranian-Persian political culture and the American culture, political culture. On the one hand, you have the Iranians who wish not to publicly take responsibility for their own history. And on the other hand, you you have the Americans who think it's all about them. So it's East meets West, and they have built the Golden Bridge. And this Golden Bridge is a 1953 revolution, uh, 1953 coup, I apologize. Uh, If you look at the coup, and first of all, there isn't one coup, but there are two coups. One took place on August 15, and the second most consequential one on August 19. But if you look at the period before then, let's talk about all the individual aspects of it very briefly. Mossadegh was not democratically elected. Nobody in Iran at that time was democratically elected. To the extent that Iran had a political system, which was a quite a mature one, it was what you can call elite pluralism landowners, merchants, and so on, they would be essentially the people who manned parliaments, the cabinets, and, and, and the centers of power. So it was essentially ruled by a certain diverse aristocracy. And Mossadegh was an aristocratic gentleman in that respect. In many ways, Mohammad Mossadegh was a great man. 
and if he had not become a prime minister, he would be recalled as one of Persia's great patriots. Uh, he was against colonial abuse of Iran. He was for nationalization of Iranian resources. He was for Iran's independence. But Mossadegh was a rarity, a man of his age, and I think he was 67 or 70 or something when he became prime minister. He had never had that position of power, which was rare because usually Iranian aristocrats had been prime minister four times. Uh, he was unaccustomed to holding power in the times of crisis because of some personality aspects of him. He was uncompromising. He was dogmatic. He was incapable of coming to terms with the great powers. He was incapable of compromising at the time when compromise was required in the oil nationalization crisis. So during his tenure, not only he rejected a large, large number of fairly serious and right and, and, and equitable agreements that were presented to him, but as the situation worsened, as the economic situation worsened, he became more despotic and dictatorial in his tendencies. He rigged parliaments, elections, he had his uh, closed newspapers, he had his rivals arrested. So some of the worst aspect of his personality became highlighted with the pressure that he was under. And by 1953, a large swath of Iranians were essentially seeking his displacement. One of the things that happened late in the Truman administration is a procession of Persians would come to the embassy and, and essentially say that they're planning to overthrow Mossadegh and whether there's any assistance the United States can offer. Lloyd Henderson, who was the ambassador at that time, had a, had a ready speech saying Iran's internal affairs are its own responsibility. By the time Eisenhower comes to power in January 1953, his inclination is to reach out to Mossadegh. And he, he actually, United States grants economic assistance to him and so forth. But the situation in Iran was deteriorating to an extent that the Eisenhower administration believed that although Mossadegh was not a communist, but he may be relying too, many on the, too much on the today Communist Party and he might be inclined toward a coalition government. And as we recall in the late 1940s, the way communism was coming to power in Eastern Europe was through coalition governments. First, there would be a coalition government between Democrats and communists in Poland, and eventually communists would displace the, the liberals. That was a fear. Uh, so by June of 1953, the Eisenhower administration, in collaboration with Britain in a plan called Ajax, decides that they would try to uh, assist replacement of Mohammed Mossadegh. Now, what did they do? What is it that the United States do? The key American... Uh, uh, operator was a gentleman named Kermit Roosevelt, and as the name suggests, he had lineage with Franklin and Teddy Roosevelt. Uh, the key American contribution to the Iranian coup was to pressure the Shah into dismissing Mossadegh, firing Mossadegh, because Shah was hesitant and reluctant to do so. And so Kermit Roosevelt and a series of American emissaries pressured him to do so and appoint a military officer named General Zahedi. That was a key American contribution to the coup, getting the Shah to fire his prime minister. The Shah eventually does on August 15th. Uh, Mossadegh is tipped off that a military officer is going to deliver his orders to him, dismissing him. He was tipped off by communist cells within the Iranian military. Uh, it was a least kept secret in Iran. I think Shurjaat, which was a kind of a communist front newspaper, published a piece saying, tomorrow there will be a coup. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
so so as as an American operation, it was just let's, let's just say it wasn't done with the utmost secrecy. <laughs> uh, the Persians like to gossip. And so everybody knew Mossad. I mean, four or five sources told Mossad, "Tomorrow, General Nasser, Colonel Nasiri will bring you your dismissal papers." <laughs> and so he had the he had the colonel arrested, and Shah fled. Then Americans essentially stopped. State Department says no more. CIA station says no more. There is one thing that Kermit Roosevelt does between August 15 and August 19. Namely, he takes the Shah's order dismissing Mossadegh and gives it both to local press and international press so they can publish it. And people become aware of the fact that the Shah has dismissed Mossadegh and that essentially galvanized the population to some respect. But at the end of the day, this was a military coup and the military had its own contingents and formations and they essentially moved into capital and Mossadegh initially flees, but then he's arrested. he is condemned to 15 years in prison. Uh, in, in Shaw initially, the, the, the sentence for treason is execution. And a lot of people told the Shah that Mossadegh should not be executed, and he wasn't. He died in 1967 in internal exile. Actually, a number of people recommended to the Shah that Mossadegh should be amnestied because of his long service to Iranian to the Iranian nation. And I actually agree with that. I think upon his arrest, Mossadegh should have been amnesty, but he wasn't. So the second part of the coup, what happens between August 15 and August 19, is really an Iranian affair. And the people that were most aggressive in trying to galvanize the population against Mossadegh were the clerics. Because one of the things that is often not said is the clerical community has very close, had very close relationships with the monarchy. Monarchy was deferential to his, to his demands. There was a force of tradition. Uh, the clerical rebellion against the Shah is an interesting, interesting uh, perspective, interesting development, given the long-standing and very congenial ties between the clerical estate and the and the, and the series of Persian monarchs. So when you kind of look at this affair, you kind of see the Iranian agency. And one more thing I say to you: let's take Iran out of it. Let's just take Iran out of it and put it aside. I say to you: there's a very sophisticated country with a well-developed political institutions and a well-developed political tradition. And then an American without ability to speak the language, without really contacts in the country, overthrows that particular regime in about two and a half weeks. What would you tell me? (laughs) If If I presented this generic case to you, Cliff, and to you, Ruel, what would you guys tell me? Very unlikely that that's the uh, that that's what happened. A, a couple of a couple of quarter, a couple of questions for both of you. But I'll start uh, at the sh- either one on the the Shah at that point was he essentially a constitutional monarch? Did he was he a strong king? Was he somebody who could be influenced but didn't know his mind? Just who was the Shah at that point? He was a he was a constitutional monarch in a sense that his power was hemmed in by competing institutions such as the parliament, the cabinet, and the aristocracy, and so on. Uh, he was deferential to that authority. He had not become an absolutist monarch and would not be so till mid-1960s, I would say. So the notion that after 1953, you see dictatorship descend on Iran is actually historically incorrect. That really happens in the early 60s. He was hesitant. Uh, he faded at times of making tough decisions. That would be a trait that would he, he would carry all the way through 1979. He was a 
he was a he was a I think Ali Amini, one of his prime ministers, said he was a, he was good for sunshine days, but not for rainy days. Uh, and that's why he needed such buttressing by the by the Americans at that time. And 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 one more thing I want to say, because a lot of people suggest, most people, that the United States intervene in Iran's internal affairs, which is true. But the invitation for that intervention came from Mossadegh. America became involved in a commercial dispute between Great Britain and the government in Iran at the invitation of Mossadegh. He asked the Americans to mediate. Moreover, Mossadegh continuously appealed to American presidents, both Truman and Eisenhower, to give him more economic assistance and to purchase more of his oil to offset the economic sanctions orchestrated by the, by the United Kingdom. Mossadegh was actively inviting American intervention in Iranian affairs to his benefit. So that's almost not said. Mossadegh wanted America to be deeply involved in Iranian internal affairs on his behalf. And, well, Kermit Roosevelt, was he a super spy? Did he think of himself as a super spy? What, what do we know about him as a CIA agent? Well, I mean, I think it's fair to say that he certainly saw himself <laughs> as a super spy. I, I don't think it's inaccurate to say that Kermit uh, Roosevelt was in uh, a, a fairly talented blowhard. Uh, he, uh, he was an excellent propagandist in Washington circles. Uh, it's a it's a real pity that uh, most of the paperwork, the agency paperwork, the routine traffic uh, from the early 1950s has been uh, destroyed. It wasn't destroyed because anybody was embarrassed about what happened. It was destroyed because they were just, uh, you know, getting they wanted more safe space. So a lot of that stuff was burned. A lot of it wasn't microfiched. And it's a real pity. I, I spent some time actually in the archives trying to track down uh, paperwork from 53 and earlier. And I found some. And it was, uh, you know, I could say this. Uh, case officers in 1953 wrote better than case officers in 1985. But I suspect that's true almost with all Americans. Uh, you know, uh, the the penetration in Iranian society was episodic. You know, you, you'd find a case officer who was good and the resulting paperwork was interesting. But most often it wasn't. Uh, and I think uh, Ray's point is, is, is on target. I mean, if you take this away from Iran, if you take it away from all the myths that have developed about the agency with the 53 coup, about the agency in general with covert action, uh, uh, you, you look at it and on face value, you say, this doesn't make a lot of sense. And I would argue that what is suggested about 53 and the coup is actually repeats itself in a lot of agency interventions that have, have gained notoriety, that when you actually start to look at them, and if you get to know the personalities, most of them are now all dead, uh, involved with these various operations, you have to scratch your head and go, you know, maybe there's a little bit of exaggeration or dishonesty or bad memory uh, in these whole affairs. Uh, and I, I think with the 53 coup, it just fits so perfectly into what developed into a left-wing critique 
of anti, uh, anti-Americanism, of anti-interventionism, that it's just, it's just golden. And I also have to say a lot of Iranian leftists became very fond of it because it was a way of sort of relieving them of the responsibility uh, for a sequence of events that in their mind led to the Islamic Revolution and their fall from power in the Islamic Revolution. It's much better to blame the Americans. And the and, and would you say around that time in, in the 50s, um, Ray, that the the, the clerisy, the re, I think you call it the religious establishment, was it fairly monolithic? And what was its attitude towards Mossadegh? Well, it operated at that time under a leadership of Ayatollah Bourjordi, which was a single grand Ayatollah. Right. Which which wasn't the case after he passed away. I think he passed away in 1961, Ruel. 61, uh, 62, I can't remember. Something like that. So it operated under his authority. And the clerical uh, uh, the, the clerical state as a whole was actually f- in favor of the monarchy. The, the cleric that was heavily involved in politics at that time was Ayatollah Kashani, who actually became a speaker of the Iranian parliament, had a falling out with Mossadegh and was a, was a critical to mobilization of the mosque against, uh, against Mossadegh, as was Ayatollah Behbahani, who was a little more esteemed in terms of his clerical lineage. He had more of a connection to the Qom religious seminary. But basically, both the monarchy and the clerical establishment were forces of tradition. Uh, and they were, they, they, they were both concerned about the rise of leftist ideologies, particularly communist governments and communist movements. Because at that time, Today Party, the Communist Party, was the largest and most organized political party in Iran. Uh, later on, I think Iraqi Communist Party becomes more significant player than today did after repression in Iran. So, so today, as a word meaning people, uh, it's essentially the Communist Party of Iran at that time, which was quite quite active among uh, intellectual classes as well as the mobilization of industrial workers for strikes and so forth. So the clerical community needed the monarchy as a force of tradition, battling leftist ideologies, which were becoming popular among certain generation of uh, of third world le- uh, young people throughout the throughout the post-colonial uh, post-colonial. Africa I mean, I, I think it's important. I think it's important to note that in the fifties and sixties, and especially in the seventies, that left-wing ideas start to permeate uh, Iranian seminaries. So uh, clerics, very influential Iranian clerics, start to sound a bit like Marxists. But uh, in the early 1950s, uh, that's, that's, that's not true. If you look back at Khomeini, uh, you, can, you can clearly see that, uh, you know, the early Khomeini, I mean, even the later Khomeini, he, he's, he's really a traditionalist with... With a revolutionary bent, you you don't really see the left wing ideas, but by the 1960s, 1970s, uh, you you do start to see them, uh, which is why they call a lot of Iranian clerics sort of red clerics. Hmm. Do you, and do you happen to know the the Iranian Communist Party, the Two Day Party? Uh, to what extent was it being influenced from Moscow? Uh, one of the things we have seen in the disclosure of Soviet papers, uh, Soviet archival records since the collapse of the Soviet Union is that it was heavily influenced, if not directed, by the uh, the, the KGB or predecessor, maybe the NKVD. So in that sense, the connection between the two was quite pronounced. And this is one we have seen 
a lot of communist parties in the aftermath of collapse of the Soviet Union, namely to the extent that it directed what was legitimately called international communism. Yeah, yeah. Because for a long for a long time, people will say, uh, you know, communism has indigenous roots here. And in 1970s, all of us are old enough to remember, they even came out with a thing called Euro communism, mm-hmm. which was Very essentially well. a brand of communism that was authentically Eastern European and Western European. Now we see that the Soviet Union was heavily involved in directing the agenda, the personnel selection. And 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 the activities of these particular groups. Uh, that's true about today. It's true about the Azerbaijani Communist Party. That was a separatist movement in the in the late 1940s. Yeah, you, ha- you actually had an organization called the Comintern, the Communist International, yes. run out of Moscow, which was had global ambitions, and that was superseded eventually. I forget what year you guys may remember by the Common Form, which was essentially a disinformation agency. Uh, I think one might say. Right, right. I thought just to to understand, to reflect on the extent to which this false narrative took hold, there's two things that I I believe you mentioned both in your your op-ed. One is the, the Hollywood film Argo. Which actually was a very good film, but yes, it begins, but it opens. But it opens by saying, "You got to understand, we're bad guys too here, okay? So we're not really being so anti-Iranian by showing how he helped these guys escape from because they probably deserved it, and or we do. I mean, go ahead. Do, do well, a, I mean, both you do a review of Argo. Uh, uh, the argument here is it was not illegitimate for the Iranians to take over the American embassy, given the fact that the American embassy was plotting against the incumbent Iranian government in 1953. So it was legitimate for Iran's revolutionaries to once again fear that the embassy was plotting against the revolution and therefore was seeking to, to have some kind of a reaction against it and so forth. So that, that's, that's where the legitimacy comes from. But the 1953 coup is actually a rarity for intelligence operation. It has penetrated our national culture and national narratives. I mean, yes. it, a lot of people don't remember the 1954 Guatemala coup. Uh, the Chile barely remember it. Barely. Uh, the Chile coup, uh, that has that has uh, that has legs because Kissinger is still alive. <laughs> 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 and uh, when, as so long as Kissinger is alive, there's going to be a left wing cadre saying it. And given the fact that Kissinger insists on living past Moses, 125, <laughs> so that that one has some that 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 one has. But the 1953 coup in Iran has colonized. Our historical subconscious, uh, and 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 and, and the, it, I mean, John Kerry talks about it. Hollywood actors talk about it. And talks about it. Albright talks about it. Albright, right? Remember, here's our quote. I think it's in your piece. The coup was clearly a setback for Iran's political development, and it is easy to see why many Iranians continue to resent this intervention. In their internal affairs, so and I and I suspect that when Obama says, "If I reach out my hand, will you unclench your fists?" This is what he has in mind, right? So the coup has everything that the left wing intelligentsia wants, right? It has a nefarious Americans situated in Langley, mm. plotting against a democratic regime, and then comes the backfire, namely that they create the Islamist revolution. And the and the anguish and anger of the Islamists therefore has to be situated in a certain context. 
And that's how you get certain uh, uh, views on the American embassy seizure in, in 19, uh, 19, November 1979. Uh, so the coup kind of defines uh, not every sector, not every American sector. I don't think Republicans care about the coup. But uh, certainly in the Democratic Party, we're appreciating past grievances that most politicians poorly understand uh, has essentially gained traction. I would say one of the things that Rex Tillerson did, which was positive, uh, was to release about 1,000 pages of documents pertaining to the coup that John Kerry had embargoed. And most of those were actually, as well knows, they were intelligence reports. They were from the station, they were from the CIA, and so forth. So John Kerry, who talked about the coup and the history, was actually a forces of historical obstruction. <laughs> And, not for and, the first or last time, I might say. But and, never mind. you know, Rex Tillerson may not be our most noteworthy Secretary of State, <laughs> but he offered historians a very substantial cachet of documents. And I will say one more thing about this before turning it to Ruel. Nobody's opinion was changed by that, <laughs> by the release of the documents, because everybody saw in it what they wanted to see. Yeah, go ahead, Ruel. Talk and 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 why did John? I mean, John Kerry wanted to make sure that that false narrative stayed in place for well, his own Well, he didn't reasons? want these. Uh, he never. I don't think he read these thousand pages of documents, mm. but he assumed that they will reveal American plots and nefarious American mm. actors, and therefore they would uh, obstruct his diplomacy, the nuclear diplomacy. As a matter of fact, the documents were exculpatory. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, all right, Ruel, say anything you want about that. And my last question on this subject, I have another subject I want to I want to touch on, is what the lessons are in terms of U.S. relations cu currently um, with with the regime in Iran. Well, I mean, I would just say this. I mean, the on on the on the paperwork again. I mean. You know, there have been attempts. Uh, I mean, I think I actually know the individual who uh, leaked uh, one of the copies of the, quote, official history of the CIA to The New York Times. You know, it should have been released earlier. There had been requests actually from the director's office for it to be released earlier. And uh, as I understand it, uh, the Office of the Historian and others had actually quote, frozen its release because they weren't sure the British were would be in favor of it. When I brought this up once with a uh, former head of MI6, you know, he said he didn't care whether the damn thing was released. So, I mean, th these why things don't get released can be very, very bureaucratic. They should always, they sh there's, there's no reason why all the paperwork shouldn't be released. Someone could go into the archives of the agency, dig up whatever you can, and just release it so everybody... Uh, can see it, uh, and you, the, the more sunshine on this discussion would help. But what Ray just said, I think, is true. I mean, I think you could have a burning sun. You could reveal, uh, you know, a great deal of American incompetence and ignorance, et cetera, and it's not going to fundamentally change the narrative that's developed. Uh, I think this bloody narrative is 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 with us um, for uh, for the foreseeable future. Well, uh, raised on his part, and, uh, and largely, again, largely ineffectively, as effectively <laughs> as as one as as one probably can. It take it, that's a whole other subject: is how narratives get formed and how they get changed and how they don't. And this is all about communicology. Okay, but another example of what we might call historical revisionism came out 
also uh, in August, in an online publication called Iran International. Now, this here's the story here. It's long been believed um, that the seizing of the American embassy in Tehran, and that was in the fall, in like November of 79, 54 hostages taken, held for 444 days, that this, that this event was spontaneous, that it was an expression of revolutionary zeal by students with no real link to the government, that it was neither planned nor endorsed by the regime, that it took Khomeini by surprise. But last month, a former Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, Guard, Guard Corps general said that, in fact, the IRGC knew about the plans to seize the embassy in Tehran two days before the attack on the compound. Um, and I'm going to get these names perhaps wrong. Mohsen uh, Rafigdos was in charge of the Revolutionary Guards. Logistics, when he says he was told that a group of students is going to storm the embassy, and he said the IRGC had a part in organizing the attack on the embassy. What this? Go ahead, go ahead, Ray. I can see your your thoughts. Uh, no, that's absolutely. That's been. I, I hate to use the word I, but back hey, when there was a weekly yeah. standard, I wrote a piece for on how Khomeini knew about it because a number of former hostages said that he knew about it, and they had. When, when the idea came up, they said they wanted assurances of Khomeini's backing and foreknowledge and was granted. Ayatollah Mehdavi Kenny, who's now passed away, who was basically head of internal security in Iran at that time, the comités, the committees that were member, he hints in his uh, memoirs that Khomeini knew about it. Now, he doesn't say I knew about it because at that time, he, when the hostage crisis broke out, when the embassies were seized, he calls Khomeini's office and talks to his son and says, does the imam know about this? And Ahmed just Ahmed just laughs, and he goes, does he know about this? If he does, I'm not going to do anything about it. He said, don't worry about it. It's all taken care of. Uh, and Rafiq Duz actually is a further confirmation of the fact that this was a planned ahead of time. Now, why did Khomeini want the embassy seized for, and what is the argument that's made on behalf of the seizure? Because even those who challenge whether the embassy seizure was authorized by him uh say well then he used it he approved of it for 444 days uh because of the domestic politics in iran and he wanted to essentially uh uh radicalize the population and displace the moderate forces and the provisional government and so forth so i think it was a number of ways number one khomeini wanted to humiliate the united states that was that was more of an imperative for him than even rearranging the decks in Iran's internal political affairs, because he could do that anytime he wanted to. I mean, he could dismiss Mehdi Bazargan with ease. He didn't need to instigate an international crisis. Uh, so the humiliation of the United States was very critical because his favorite slogan was America cannot do a damn thing. And we have to go back to the early to the 1970s. When the Iranians, I think fair to say, the Iranian population had an exaggerated view of American power and American influence and American ability. So he wanted to sweat that sentiment out of the Iranian people. He wanted to let them know that America is actually cannot do a damn thing. You know how I know? Because I just took their embassy. Uh, I just took their embassy uh, 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 captive and their diplomats paraded around for 444 days. And now we know we knew then that those uh, diplomats were actually abused, uh, they were maltreated, they were mistreated, we know that. Uh, so humiliation of America 
and disabusing the Iranian people of the notion that American power is still a significant force in regional politics and Iranian politics, I think was a more important uh, motivation than rearranging the decks in domestic Iranian politics. In my view, I don't know if Ruel... Well, to me, just raise two points you can confirm or, or dispute. One is if you believe that there is something called international law, very basic to it is that um, uh, an embassy is sacrosanct. You don't send in your forces. Secondly, diplomats have a special status. You don't hold them hostage. You don't abuse them. If you want to say, I don't believe, I don't recognize that there is international law or it doesn't apply to us here because we're revolutionaries, or we want to show that the Americans can't enforce it and therefore international law is really just a, a, a chimera. This is one one very good way to do it. The other thing that strikes me is that I know the I and other journalists left Iran as the hot summer kind of went in, and not a lot of revolutionary progress was being made over the summer. Yes, women were now wearing chadors and covering up. Yes, a lot of the young people who uh, were under attack and had some had to give up their weapons. But there was it was not like wow, look what this revolution has brought us. You needed something to reestablish, to to rekindle revolutionary fervor and zeal. I throw those two out for you to play with. If you think yeah, I, right I, I think the two positions are not inconsistent, humiliating yeah. the United States yeah. and, and <laughs> revitalizing. As a matter of fact, they're connected. Right, right, right. Uh, I would say one thing, CIA gets some ribbing from Ruel a lot, but the first meeting that the Carter administration had on the Iran hostage crisis, Stansfield Turner told Carter that Khomeini authorized this, and we believe he authorized it in late October. That's in the documentary record. The CIA, essentially, the idea that militant students took over the hostages, in a sense, served both countries' narrative, right? It serves Khomeini's narrative because he can have all the benefits, but not necessarily the responsibility. But it served the American side, too, because if the national leader has ordered the seizure of your embassy, Cliff, you got to go to war. You're right. Correct. Well, to, to the extent we did, yeah, of course. Yeah, but we, we said there's a militant students. We're negotiating with the Iranian government mm, to get right, them out. Right. That was uh, kind of a right. Right. I see what you mean. Yeah. Th yeah that yeah. was convenient for us. Right. 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 And by the way, the phrase the Americans cannot do a damn thing was Khomeini's, but it's been repeated right up to the present day by by his successors. And he's not actually wrong. <laughs> <laughs> not based on the evidence of the current administration. I mean, I, I just I mean, I just add it, it is amazing the way guilt, generational guilt, uh has affected Americans when it comes to Iran. Uh, I would argue that much of that that guilt is without foundation, but that is relevant. Uh, the guilt's there. I mean, I think my favorite moment of guilt was not Madeleine Albright apologizing for the 1953 coup. It was Bill Clinton apologizing for the entire West uh, in his attempt to, you know, uh, reach out uh, to Mohammed Khatmi, uh, who what really was a you know, a reforming cleric who won the election, a presidential election in 1997. Um, so it is, it, it's just, it, it is striking how the, the 53, the myth of 53, the lexicon of 53 has stayed with us and has, I think in some ways, 
uh, fundamentally shaped American foreign policy towards the Islamic Republic. Well, I think, I mean, maybe this is the last point. I'll let you make whatever points occur to you that haven't been made. Guilt seems to be an overriding emotion that that influences foreign policy in America and Europe. I mean, European guilt for for imperialism and colonialism, as if the rest of the world was not under the sway of imperialism, of colonialism, as if it's only the Europeans, not the Chinese, not the Ottomans, not the Persians, not the not that there wasn't imperialism in Africa, that the Aztecs were an imperialist. I mean, this is the way of the world, yet only Westerners feel guilty about it. And by the way, this is something else I've been thinking about and actually writing about. We have neo-imperialism and neo-colonialism right now in no less a place than Africa, only it's Chinese, Russian, and Islamist. And 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 also the the Iranian regime today has mastered imperialism on the cheap. Mm. Oh, yeah. uh, mm, right, uh, right. Which is sort of similar to the British, although they would they use auxiliary forces from other countries. Uh, they have militias that are composed of Afghans and Pakistanis and Iraqi Shiites and this and Turks and so on. And they use that multi-ethnic force and deploy it to places where they want to assert their influence. It's actually very British. (laughs) (laughs) Right. The Iranian empire, the Islamic empire of Iran, certainly includes to a greater extent Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, Yemen. And they're influential in Latin America, and they're influential, by the way, in parts of Africa too. It's and, not and, just Al Qaeda and, and Islamic and Syria, the entire Levant, and Syria, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, Palestinian territories, yeah, uh, and uh, they are certainly trying to do that right in Gaza, and with is is Palestinian Islamic Jihad is very right. much their proxy, and Hamas right. is sort of proxy in Gaza well, and I, more, I mean, and more I, in the West Bank. I mean, I might add an addendum to that if you go back and you look at, for example, the Syrian civil war. And when the Russians decided to intervene in 2015, uh, and they needed to intervene because the Islamic Revolution, Revolutionary Guard Corps was losing the war against uh, the Sunni rebellion, uh, that the Obama administration um, said quite clearly that this would be a quagmire for the Russians, and it was something that they were going to regret, that... Uh, we had no longer believed that force could be decisive and that you can actually change history through winning uh, through war. And I if, I, argue, if I can add one more thing, yes, because please. I think the shadow of 53 hangs over Iran today in a different way that we haven't talked about, namely that any American support for forces of dissent within Iran is likely to backfire. It's likely to. Uh, that's an excellent point. It's, it is that uh, the, the United States cannot be a participant in the Iranian drama today because of its previous complicity and any hints of American support for democratic forces of dissent within Iran is likely to be counterproductive because that will mobilize the population against them and further buttress the regime. That is another uh, that aspect of the 53 that still, I think, is injected in our bloodstream. And maybe it applies to other countries as well. The idea of America can't be a force for positive change 
in such complicated countries. Makes sense, I'm afraid. Our, our, mutual, our mutual friend, uh, Phil Gordon, uh, wrote a, uh, who's now Kamala, uh, the vice president's uh, national security advisor, he wrote a book uh, uh, with just that theme that uh, America intervenes, America will cock up. So, yeah. And his first case was 53. That was yes. chapter one. Exactly. Yeah, it was the original sin chapter. Right. Which implies that, and this is my my last question, which implies that American policy now vis-a-vis Iran should be what? Uh, I Well, right now, and for a long period of time, actually predating this administration, we have had an arms control approach. Uh, for us, Iran is essentially trying to negotiate some kind of an agreement and put some kind of restraint, that's that. Uh, so in one sense, it's become a more technical approach. But in an overall sense, as I said, it essentially suggests that American support for the forces of dissent within Iran is likely to be counterproductive to the vitality of those forces of dissent because of America's moral contamination and the original sin, Yeah, I think. Yes, um, but, I, but I'm not sanguine. I'm not... Eh optimistic about the prospects of internal forces overthrowing this regime uh, when the, the 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 shah i think we can agree was not about to kill thousands of his own people in order to stay in power i think the current regime will is is quite happy to do exactly well, that Ruel and i debate this all the time <laughs> uh, that's one of the issues uh he can, he can comment on this <laughs> Well, I mean, I, 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 the regime certainly has, uh, I would argue, the advantage because, uh, you know, if a regime is willing to uh, poison little girls uh, nationwide in schools, uh, that tells you something about its volition. Now, Ray might counter in saying that poisoning little girls is sort of oppression on the cheap. It's yes, way, it's, it's what you way. do when you can't rely on your security forces. Right. When you have doubts about your security forces on right. mass media right. demonstrations, poisoning little girls is a great way to terrify parents and keep their children home. Uh, I think that I, I don't I don't disagree with that. I think the regime does fear mass confrontations, but what it hasn't seen actually outside of the minority regions, it hasn't seen you know, tens or hundreds of thousands of Persians uh, willing to hit the street and meet those security forces head on to test them. And as long as that isn't the case, then I don't think the regime, you know, falls in a, in, in a catastrophic way. I think it's rotting, it's eroding. The regime is aware of how deep the internal rot is. But I, 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 I'm skeptical you're going to see a moment a decisive moment where the whole thing goes kapooey. And anything last you want to say about what American policy not shouldn't be, but should be? I think that's you, Ruel. <laughs> it could be. Well, I mean, yeah, you're, you're, you're checking out. Uh, no, uh, I mean, you, yeah. you and I are on the record on this. I would say, Ruel said we haven't seen an occasion where the regime that is rotting and decaying has faced that kind of a that kind of a mass uprising uh that would be that would uh, cause erosion of his power to the point of collapse uh and we also haven't seen 
the United States committing itself to systematically and continually weakening the Iranian regime in order to tilt this internal balance of power more in favor of the opposition than the regime. We haven't seen that either. As a matter of fact, I would argue that today, all the three great powers, if you want to call them that, China, well, four, European Union, China, Russia, and, and, and the United States are somewhat invested in prolongation of the Islamist regime for different reasons. Right. Russians want a partner in Europe, the Chinese yeah. want a trade ally, and the Americans want an arms control uh, counterpart to put some caps on the nuclear program. So right now, far from great powers coming together, or United States on its own trying to weaken and hollow out a decaying regime, there's a commitment among great powers to buttress the regime because in one stance, it's a responsible stakeholder over an expanding nuclear facility. On the one hand, for Chinese, it's a gas station. For the Russians, it's a source of military supplies in the war on in, in the war on Ukraine. I mean, I think Ray and I would agree that uh, the United States has made uh, a bipartisan mistake by focusing on the nuclear program. That by focusing on on it, which uh, the odds of success were never great, uh, we actually stay away from that which the regime truly fears. And and that is the possibility of internal internal turbulence, dissent, uh, and uh, as long as the the nuclear issue stays forefront in the forefront, uh, the odds of us ever engaging in any type of or building a consensus uh, to develop a, a a polite regime change program. I don't think we can get the Americans to back anything that isn't polite. Uh, is is near nil. So, but a nuclear. Uh, but is it not true that a nuclear armed Iran or an, or or an Iran, an Islamic Republic or Iran that is right on the threshold, that's a game changer. It's a strategic threat to the U.S. and it's an existential threat to Israel. I don't. I mean, I it, it is a, it is certainly a strategic uh, menace to the United States. I don't think it's a game changer for the United States. It's a game changer for Israel. I mean, the United States can blow the Islamic Republic to smithereens. So uh, whether the United States would allow an Iranian nuclear weapon to check its behavior in the Persian Gulf, that's an excellent question. Uh, but the, 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 you know, since I, I've argued this for, you know, years, the only way you're going to stop the Islamic Republic, the only possible way you're going to stop the Islamic Republic from getting a nuclear weapon is to bomb it. Uh, the United States has un been unwilling to do so. I don't think Israel is capable of doing so. Uh, so you need to shift that debate. Uh, and we are unable so far to shift that debate. And it's particularly difficult now because on both the left and the right, if you bring up the phrase regime change, everybody has a severe allergic reaction. Uh, so no one wants to go there. So we default to easier options uh, and we don't focus on what is most important, what the regime tells us is most important, which is its own internal weaknesses. All right. It's uh, a lot more we could discuss. It's always hard to predict the future. But as Ray has pointed out now, it's also very often hard to predict the past. So, so thanks. <laughs> <laughs> so thanks, Ray, Takai, for this good conversation. <laughs> thanks, Ruel. Uh, thanks to all of you who have joined us here today for this edition of Foreign Policy. <laughs> <laughs>
Thank you for listening to this episode of Foreign Policy. If you enjoyed the show, please rate us, preferably with five stars. Ratings and reviews help give us visibility and the opportunity to reach more people who seek to understand the most critical national security and foreign policy issues. Also, make sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Follow FDD on social media and visit our website at fdd.org. There you can find research by FDD experts. You can subscribe to all FDD's products. You can catch up on any past episodes you may have missed. Finally, we'd love your feedback, your ideas, your questions, your criticisms. Send us an email at foreignpodicy at fdd.org. Until next time, I'm Cliff May, and you've been listening to Foreign Policy.